Broadcasting live from a scientist character with a completely unearned nickname, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Dr. Science, Scared Strother. Dr. Dr. Science, MD. Oh, yeah. We're going to do a lot of Statham impressions for our Meg episode today. I have a feeling. A lot of Statham and maybe a sprinkling of Rain Wilson in there. But that we'll, we will get to that. Surely we will get to that. There will be plenty of Rain Wilson talk. <laughs> that is for sure. But first up, we have, we have a, a decent chunk of news here. Starting off with the tragic passing of Pee Wee Herman himself, Paul Rubens who succumbed to a private battle with cancer. While I am not a huge Pee-wee's Playhouse guy, I love... I think I've talked about on the show how much I love Pee-wee's Big Adventure and what an important movie that is to me. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is actual cinema, I feel like. It's like a movie that is... It's almost on, when I think back on it, on the caliber of like a like an airplane or a top secret where it is just like joke after joke that straight up, they, there are very few misses. They all pretty much land really hard because it's just, for as silly as it is, it is so well written in, in those rapid fire jokes. And hell, I'm even, you ever see Pee Wee Under the Big Top, Garrett? The sequel? I have not seen Big Top oh, Pee Wee. No, I have my, not. Uh, Big Top Pee Wee, thank you for correcting me. It's so weird, dude. It's like, heard. he's like halfway maybe back in time in like, like 1920s Americana, but also he's Pee Wee and he has like a hot dog tree at his house. Obviously, that movie has a lot of really stealth powerhouse behind it, like, Phil Hartman co-wrote it. He and Paul Rubens were creative partners. Tim Burton's first movie, which is insane. That was his also, first movie? I think probably top three Tim Burton movies for me. It's hard to beat. It's just kind of perfect. I mean, to this day, the imprint of Large Marge, in like it is in my brain what she looks like. I watched that very young, obviously, because it's Pee-wee. Rented a VHS from the library, of course, and that just, it was brutal. I was destroyed that night. My my childhood innocence was lost looking at Large Marge's ghost face. Do you remember the SNL digital short where Paul Rubin's in-character is Pee-wee and Andy Samberg go get trashed and then beat up Anderson Cooper? No, what? When was this? I mean, whatever Andy Samberg was whatever doing digital Andy's shorts, so like oh 2012, my right? You I, know? I probably, because I, I was watching live weekly, like religiously in that era, so I might have straight up seen that, and, and I'm about to unlock a memory after I look this up after the show. I wonder if it's still up on like the SNL YouTube channel or well worth looking up. It's very funny. I mean, obviously he and Samberg have really good chemistry. <laughs> So, I mean, I I absolutely believe it. Also, I want to shout out suddenly remembering that I watched Gotham at a certain point in my life, and he is the Penguin's dad. He's like Cobblepot Senior isn't in that show. Isn't he also the Penguin's dad in Batman Returns? Is that true? I think so. Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Yeah, he's. Yeah. Oh my god. We gotta round it up. We gotta go on a Rubenthon because I would probably love nothing more. I would recommend you, as an adult, go watch some classic Pee-wee's Playhouse. It is the most bizarre thing of all time. 
and it is an actual nightmare. And I highly recommend that is my early rec center, apparently. Speaking of actual nightmares, it's time for our strike update, Seamus. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Oh, goodness. Well, there's actually some some maybe positive outlook news going on here with the strike. The AMPTP has returned to the table for negotiations with SAG-AFTRA and the WGA. That can be seen as a positive sign of, of where the strike is going, and I really do hope it is, it is in fact, going that direction. But, of course, I mean, you can't be surprised if I am skeptical of the situation as it stands. Well, when David Zaslav has been going around bragging how the strike has saved Warner Brothers Discovery $100 million. Oh, my God. What a jerk. That is That sucks. That, that shows exactly why this strike is happening when you go around doing stuff like that. Well going around doing other stuff like Disney Danger and <laughs> Universal Unrest. They're playing at the same time. Oh, Jesus. No. Audio mishmash. Jesus, God. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yuck, indeed, Mickey Yuck, indeed. Both Walt Disney Pictures and Universal are paying lobbyists to stave off legislation that would deny them tax breaks when using AI to displace film and television workers. Disney has also officially started hiring AI-related positions in the midst of the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes. So, you remember that skepticism I was talking about (laughs) just a minute ago? I I do not feel very good about these pieces of news, if I'm being honest, man. This is, if anything, it shows that they're maybe trying to stave off some decisions made on either side of this strike like this so that they can secure their last big fat tax break before they just give all the jobs to robots. I, I'm not feeling good about it, man. They, they didn't really roll back or really genuinely apologize for any of the secret invasion AI controversy Mm -hmm. that was right at the beginning of this strike. And this just, this just shows that they are fully fine trying to function without like human creativity in a non scab kind of way. It will be AI and much like Patrick Dempsey in Transformers three, Zachary Levi also helping them. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Zachary Levi! Oh, what a surprising danger that is. That's not really news, but it is interesting. <laughs> it's a surprise when we don't have a Disney danger, truly. And this is this is just right up at the tippy top of things that are the most dangerous things of all. I feel like. Well, what we haven't had in a while is, of course, a Netflix nuisance. Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> I was vibrating in my wheelchair. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I got kicked off of Netflix. Yeah, you hear that, Netflix? I'm glad. Well, the Academy Award-nominated, critically acclaimed Netflix original film, Power of the Dog, is being removed from Netflix in the United Kingdom and other international territories with no word on when or if it will return to the service. That is, I mean, I wish I could say a big surprise, and honestly, it really kind of is. I mean, the Power power of the Dog was such a phenomenon when it was nominated and when it was going around for award season. 
I've been weirdly confident in the the whole pulling content thing in that things that are genuinely important in pop culture and media might be spared, but this kind of goes to show that there is truly nothing safe. And by the way, I should clarify, it is an Academy Award winning film because I just am remembering that Jane Campion did win Best Director. Mm. So, even more it, of a reason, not that that should be a metric <laughs> exactly. for any kind of value, but it is insane. And, I mean, we could luckily go get snag that criterion, but... But that is that is a rare one to have that kind of physical release, especially for Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is a scary thing. And no amount of clout or quality is going to get Netflix to not pull content, evidently, for whatever money-making reasons. Even if it's, you know, just in places like the UK and, you know, a few other countries just for Just places now. like the UK. Just what places a, like uh, one of them. Yeah, exactly. Jason Statham. <laughs> I can't watch the power of the dog. <laughs> the power of the Meg. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we laugh. Because if we didn't, we would cry, Garrett. This is horrible news. Good God. It is terrible. Remember when they announced this deal with Criterion? And we were like, wow, maybe Netflix is going to be the first streamer <laughs> to really like pioneer the way their physical media rollout works. No, they did like four Duh. Netflix movies on Criterion. And there's been a couple of Amazon Prime ones now, too, I think. And, well, that's, that's about it. So you better hope you're movie is a prestige drama worthy of the premier <laughs> boutique blu-ray label or else if your movie's on streaming you're just not gonna ever see it again yeah you think oscars will save you oh that is that is a mistake that is a mistake that's a depressing news <laughs> cycle just all the way around oh my god yeah it really is but we are about to move into something a lot stupider and a lot more fun, which is the Chase's Statham cinematic masterpiece, <laughs> The Megalodon. Oh, let's do it, bruv. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about The Meg, in anticipation of The Meg 2's release this weekend. So... I had seen this movie before, back when it came out, and initially was was underwhelmed by... I did not feel like it fully delivered mm. on its premise. Now, upon this rewatch, some of my thoughts have changed. We'll get into it. But Seamus, you had not seen this before, and I'm very eager to hear what you thought. It was one of the corniest movies I've ever seen in my entire life, and I enjoyed the hell out of it, Garrett. I, I was... Not necessarily expecting a ton, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, the quips were just eye-rolly enough to, to make me still kind of chuckle. The action is, you know, it's there. I like Jason Statham. I thought it was a fun time. I'm kind of genuinely excited for a sequel to this mess because, I mean, it, while it was a mess, I still definitely enjoyed it. I think that Jason Statham is really the linchpin that makes this movie work because there's about because you have the opening, but then there's maybe 15, 20 minutes where Jason Statham is not in the movie. Mm. 
And that, I was like, oh, man, this whole movie's gonna be this, huh? And then he shows up, and it's not like the writing quality improves or anything, but he is just able to sell so well what the tone of this is, which I think I've kind of arrived on, and I'm I'm curious to hear your reaction to this. I think the tone of the Meg, and the quality, if I'm being honest, of the Meg is what the Fast and Furious would be if it did not have the rudder in the water that is Vin Diesel and family. Sure, sure. I could I could see that for sure. It was, at once, it was, like, really weirdly serious about some things, like, you know, disasters that may or may not have to be dealt with in this movie. But then it's, like inhuman levels of physical feats that are that are just like kind of saving the day also somehow it's it's all over the place and after a while they you know they do a couple like shock deaths mm-hmm. in this movie and after a while I was like all right it's not even that shocking anymore at that at, at this point it's just kind of I you know see it a mile away pretty much now I would I will defend this movie a little bit in that I think that A lot of the times when you get these movies that are leaning into the so bad it's good and they're trying to be these campy B-movies, they're weirdly afraid to kill characters, except for, you know, the Mm. staple genre-defining deaths that you usually get. And I appreciate that they are so unafraid to just be like, this number of people are going to die at this interval, and, like, it's (laughs) it's rapid, and... It makes it feel like there are some stakes, which is more than I can say for most movies like this. Now, I think that the gold standard for the contemporary big budget CGI camp fest is Kong Skull Island. And there is literally just no movie that can touch Kong Skull Island. So that's like an unfair thing to hold it up to. But I will say this is probably in the upper echelon of all of the rest. I think I could agree with you. I maybe am not as scholared in that genre, that super hyper-specific genre and time era of film, but, I mean, as somebody who... I, I was trying to think about it, and you might be able to help me if I'm forgetting anything, but I don't think I've ever seen a shark movie besides Jaws and Jaws the Revenge, I think is what the second one is Have you seen... Something I kept thinking about this whole movie was, have you seen Sharknado? I have not, and almost on principle at this point. And you should. You should not see Sharknado. I think that that, you should stick to your guns. Because that was the other... Because I've seen, obviously I've seen clips of Sharknado, like who, you know, as horrible as it is. I've seen pieces and scenes, and I know why it's famous. But it seems like... The Meg is just on the other side of that level of nonsense. Of just, like, so bad that it's funny, but also so bad that it's still an unwatchable franchise. The Sharknado problem, and I'm sure I've said this on the show before, they are trying way too hard to Mm. be so insane and bad, quote, that it's good. And the mistake that a lot of movies that are trying to hit that make is... They forget that there should be actual craft involved. Like, the thing that makes B-movies fun is that clearly effort went into them. Sharknado mm-hmm. doesn't look like any effort went into it. This movie 
despite its terrible screenplay and bad acting, etc., <laughs> does feel like people actually cared about what they were making to a, to a certain degree. And you, you bring up Jaws. I think that one of the pieces of evidence of that is how much it really does wear its Jaws influence on its sleeve, that it does the, you know, the waterline shots, it has the the dragging the dock that when it gets hooked on the shark and mm. even when one of the characters is in a shark cage uh the proximity beeps on their suit go bum 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 i didn't even catch that actually that's that's incredible I, how did i miss that damn it that's a great little moment like all of these little moments where they're like hey you see like you know like jaws where they're obviously this movie has nowhere anywhere near the craft of Jaws. Oh, no. It's still acknowledging, you know, Sharknado, they have no fun. Like, they're they're the big shark movie, right? They do not have fun with paying homage to the great shark movie of, of, of years past. And I'm glad that the mag is willing to do that, to, to really acknowledge the things that it's drawing from. I appreciated that, and at the same time, I mean, I bring up Jaws because it's the one other shark movie I've, I've ever seen besides, like, Shark Tale. I don't know if that counts or anything. But oh, absolutely. Um, abs- Lenny, <laughs> Scorsese the classic, and the Meg going head-to-head. <laughs> oh, could you imagine? That's the, next, that's the third movie. That's the third one. The Martin Scorsese Pufferfish, also going to be <laughs> oh, in the third God. one. Incredible. God, cinema. But I just, I, I only bring up Jaws, again, because... As a shark movie, The Meg, I, I didn't have any interest in it because I judge every shark movie against the the one shark movie, you know, the ultimate Jaws. Yeah. And in my head, I'm always like, well, why would I watch any other shark movie if I'm just going to think about watching Jaws otherwise and I should just watch Jaws? This movie isn't trying to be Jaws as much as it gives its nods to the influence, of course, because that's like the grandfather of all shark movies. But it's just, it scratches a completely different itch. They're not really trying to do that whole thing. And maybe it's just because I watched Jaws very recently on 4th of July weekend that it's, you know, so fresh in my mind. But this was just, it was just nonsense and a lot of fun and just good enough where I'm, I'm kind of locked in for this second one. I'm kind of excited about it way more than I thought I ever would be. Well, I also feel like there's a lot of The Abyss in this movie. I don't know if you oh, thought yeah? about that especially the beginning of the film, opens very similarly to the Abyss structurally. Like, you have a very similar chain of events for the first, like, half hour of the movie. And also, I feel like the the character The Wall, who our broadcasting location <laughs> is in reference to, doesn't he feel a lot like the guy... Well, specifically that one guy on Bill Paxton's crew in Titanic, but then also... That guy who's basically just the same guy, but played by a different actor in The Abyss. Oh, yeah. You're not wrong, man. I I was thinking more about, like, you know, underwater base style drama. But, like, that, you're, that is actually pretty spot on. That's probably a major influence, too. So, that's just something I was keeping in mind during the movie. Again, the last time I saw this movie, I hadn't seen The Abyss. So, there are lots of things that I'm kind of unpacking for the first time watching this but also feel like i'm watching this movie for the first time when 
I dread the moment that apparently Ruby Rose is in this movie and I have to watch Ruby Rose act for the next two hours, which is always a real cross to bear. Oh, watching her act. You can sense my air Uh quotes. Oh, Oh, man. Deafening air quotes. (laughs) I mean... I do, however, like, and we'll get to Rain Wilson in spoilers, I think. So if you want to hear our Rain Wilson thoughts, come back in spoilers after you watch The Meg. Spoilers slash Rain Wilson coming up soon. Cliff Curtis, I always an undersung guy. I like seeing him pop up and stuff. I think he's fun in this. Love seeing Hiro Nakamura himself, Masioka. In this movie, I've completely forgot, much like Ruby Rose, that he was in this movie at all, so I was very happy to see him. Ma- Masioka is... What did you know him from? Uh, from Heroes. He's the lead oh, yes, in Heroes. yes! He is the lead in Heroes. I'm such a dumbass, I just know him from Get Smart, and his subsequent short film... Uh, Lloyd uh, and What's-His-Face. Lloyd and What's-His-Name, Go Wild, <laughs> Animal House Style, TM. Oh... What a bad movie. <laughs> I like that movie, damn it. With The Rock. With oh, the everyone, rock. It's Jason Statham's best friend, The Rock. Come on. <laughs> that is interesting. Do you think they talked about that? Do you think uh, Masioka <laughs> and Jason Statham talked about that on the set of the bag? Uh, our mutual friend, The Rock, and Jason Statham rolls his eyes and he jumps into the ocean. Do you think if you asked, I don't want to get too off topic because we have a lot of men to cover. <laughs> Um, we but do. do you think that Dwayne Johnson would even remember Masioka at all? Absolutely. He doesn't remember being in that movie, probably. <laughs> like, like, even with all of the other actual people that are in it. But yeah, this movie, it's like a fake movie that's in another movie. The stab bit in Scream in, yeah. in, that, in that whole thing. Or it's almost like, I feel like the characters in 30 Rock would go see this movie. And yeah, I, I, I think that's true, because it's such a, again, when it was coming out, I was so off my radar, because I was like, oh, this is real dumb, and I just didn't even think twice, but how right slash wrong I was. Yeah, it is really, it's really dumb, it's not good, but it is fun to watch. I do think, and I will stand by my initial take, that it does not have as much fun as it could Mm-hmm. But it did unlock a little bit more for me this viewing than it did the first time. Well, I would surely revisit this in a big, dumb, campy, corny movie idea kind of way. I don't think I'm... If I'm trying to watch, like, a good action movie or a good shark movie or a good Jason Statham movie, The Meg isn't on the top of any of those lists, but... If I'm trying to do the bad version of all of that, then this movie would hit the spot so well. I guess, I'll put it, Seamus, this is not a recommendation that applies to you or me. (laughs) Okay. But if you're a normal, sane person, I would say that you should watch this in the same mood that you would be to watch a Fast and the Furious movie. I would agree with that, though we just kind of got done saying that it doesn't quite get to that level but again, it's a little crazier even but cultists we <laughs> yeah that's true we have we have taken on the oath at this point family family the only thing that could stop this big dinosaur shark is family's <laughs> cars dom driving a what is it is a chevy barracuda who makes a barracuda <laughs> i don't i don't know i was just thinking of vid diesel is driving one of those submersible submarines from this movie but it has a v8 engine sticking out of the front that of it underwater perfect that is perfect <laughs> 
It's a Plymouth Barracuda. Which Plymouth is, Barracuda. Plymouth is a Chrysler, so that's so I was not right. But well, toss him in a car and have him drive off the edge of an oil rig, and that's cinema, baby. That is cinema, baby. <laughs> but do you want to do you want to get into the weirder everything of this movie? I, I, I feel I, like I'm chomping at the bit. I I am so excited to talk about more Meg. So chomping like a Meg itself. Chomp oh. on this. Official spoilers for the Meg. Two Megs. There's always a bigger fish, Garrett. There are two Megs in this movie, and they use one Meg as bait for the bigger Meg. And that was a lot of fun there. Let's just do it. They do a couple rug pulls of like, you know, did we get it? Oh, we got it. High fives all around. And then they, you know, they, they have fun with the reveal that we all know is coming because it would be the stupidest way ever to kill the Meg. But I was having a lot of fun with that with that kind of stuff in the ocean combat of it all. Yeah, I think that that's a very satisfying reveal in a movie that is not really competently structured enough to have that satisfying <laughs> yeah, reveal. Yeah. So th- that's a credit to it. That's a credit to the film. Um, and the whole over-the-top nature of the characters, it's so one-dimensional that it almost feels like self-parody it almost feels like something like i'm gonna invoke black adam here wow where it's not it's not black adam black adam is a a a pinnacle of self-aware nonsense in a way that this movie (laughs) nowhere near approaches but i think that the statham character jonas who is definitively the best part of this movie in no small part due to Jason Statham's performance. The fact that he has to save his ex-wife, that's so cliche and trite, and yet here we are, and it's here in this movie presented completely earnestly. I think that's hysterical. Also a lot like the Abyss, (laughs) of course. Uh, And the Dwayne Johnson classic, uh, San Andreas. Also like San Andreas, that's true. There's a little bit in there. They're sprinkled in. Yeah, but this, you know, I guess my takeaway should be that every rock movie would be... I like San Andreas, but every rock movie would be better if it were Jason Statham, is I guess my takeaway here. Which is is not something The Rock would admit. (laughs) That's not something The Rock would admit even in, like, therapy. But, like, it's so true that, like... That would get your lights punched out by Hobbs himself, but, I mean, Jason Statham is just the better version in any one of those roles. You're not wrong. And I also feel like Statham doesn't usually get to play this guy. I don't know, maybe I've just not seen enough Statham movies, but he's almost like Ethan Hunt in this or something. He's so uber capable. <laughs> yeah. You know, I... Statham's usually, like, a bumbling, like, oi, I'm just trying to, oi. Like, like I'm thinking about Crank, where he's just, like, a low-level, yeah, he's yeah. just a sleazy gangster who's in over his head. But in this, he's, he's like, like, getting punched in the face with a pint in his hand, but he's still, like, holding the pint as mm-hmm. he's getting knocked down. And I guess Shaw is more like this character, but... It's very fun to see him do, you know, he's got these terrible one-liners. I love when he and his Chinese love interest, who he has no chemistry with, finally admit their feelings for each other. (laughs) And the daughter is teasing him. He just turns pretty much to camera and goes, this is possibly the worst moment of my life. Yeah, oh my god. That is such, that's such a bad scene. That is retroactively so good and funny because of that one line and specifically the delivery of that line. 
Yeah, he is he is chewing up the scenery like no one else. He's smirking and he's you know, he's got his uh towel scene with Su Yin, the main lady that he is somehow getting married to by the end of this movie that we know for some reason. Yeah, that is he, insane. That's it's, this is movie's it's insane. so strange. It it really is though, but that's why it's such a fun, stupid summertime throw it on when you're in the mood for nothing else kind of thing. I, I kept Every time he did pretty much anything, Jason Statham in this movie, I was like, this is his, it's his Expendables credentials to me. Because when he was in the Expendables franchise, I was never like, he's done the things that earn him that spot alongside like all the terrible Rambo sequels and all the god-awful terminator sequels that all of his co-stars kind of had under their belt to give them that expendables role but he was doing like you know guy Ritchie movies and um he's doing the you know the transporter isn't like that much of a parody of itself no matter how many sequels he got but this is truly his expendables credentials and pretty much just a rambo story like pick a rambo sequel it's this movie where it's like, he's incredibly capable. He's hiding out in a Southeast Asian country, just like being a sad drunk. And they're like, no one else can do it, but you Rambo. And he's like, well, I guess I got to do it. And then he does it everything flawlessly. It's, it's, it's incredible. I am also really impressed by what a good swimmer he is. I just kept thinking, man, his form He's out. Yeah, right. I noticed that too. And then I was racking my brain. It was like a sense memory seeing him swim like that. And there's got to be something that I've seen where he swims that, like, robotically, that perfect angular form that he has. I there's got to be something. Also, do you think they had to license? Which is a great joke. I want to preface. Do you think they had to license just keep swimming from Disney Pixar <laughs> in order to get <laughs> in this movie? Honestly, maybe like that. That was that was a pretty blatant reference, I would say. I mean, I guess you could argue some kind of parody or whatever. But I if, mean, if they did, it was worth it. it I think it, so. It's I think so. It's on theme, and it's a fun little moment, and it and it gives you a glimpse into his character. And it's one of the only moments that you really see him be like scared and vulnerable, even though he's not super scared and vulnerable. But it gives you an insight, like. <laughs> The idea that he's going to sing to himself while he's swimming, you're like, oh, he is actually not pumped about being out here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love, I mean, just going, the the initial flashback to his, like, fake uh, deep sea rescue squad flashback, uh-huh. and, like, for a minute you're like, oh, is he going to, like, try to play this as, like, a guilt-ridden very you know very sad kind of character but even in his like sad times post being called crazy or whatever him getting the abyss style depth psychosis or whatever everybody's mm. accusing him of i can't believe longmire would do that to him I <laughs> say those things oh my god well he he kind of redeemed himself he gets chomped to save ruby rose which is yeah, not a trade off uh, that i think is worthy no. uh but uh, a lot of people get chomped. We were just talking about Masioka. He he gets chomped pretty early on. Yeah. He's like the sacrificial guy in the submarine who's like, tell my wife. He literally does a tell my wife I love her, which is insane to do in this day and age. But it was so good. It was so well done. And I also, 
feel like that scene is weirdly edited because in the amount of time that it takes him to close the hatch, I feel like he could have probably gotten up into 100%. 100%. And again, that's probably like some weird editing choice to build tension of like, every, you know, this is going to show every angle of him like making the sacrifice and doing the thing, but like he could have for sure gotten out of it. And I, I, I guess it's also like he had to flip the lights on and off or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they really had to make the wall real sad for a minute, you know, before they kill him later. I'm coming back to the Fast and the Furious for a second. The wall DJ scenes feel like Tej and Roman scenes. Yo, they really actually do. Because this is a theory that I had the whole time of like, because those characters play really well together. And then our boy, our boy Rain Wilson is just floundering out there, sadly. And I feel like the Wall, DJ, and Rain Wilson's char- millionaire character are all, like, split versions of the same character. They've got a lot of similar quirks, and they play well off each other when you're saying, like, it's the Wall and DJ. But they sprinkle in, like, DJ can't swim, and then they just, like, really never explore how interesting it is that this tech guy is, like, in a underwater base, and he's afraid of swimming. And Rain Wilson, though, playing out of touch super well, that's his, you know, that's his thing, is whatever character he is, he's gotta be out of touch severely. This just did not hit the mark. He seemed like such a vapid, two-dimensional kind of millionaire character that even when I thought that I had his number, and he does the, you know, stupid lie about calling the military, Mm -hmm. I almost got, got by that rug pull because i was expecting like there's okay there's no actual way that they are playing this character this flat that he's going to do exactly what he ends up doing but that was a surprise in a weird way then it was like (laughs) a couple layers of surprise that they ended up actually doing it i'm gonna lay my cards out of here is my take on rain wilson oh yes from the first one like from the first time i saw it i should say and then, after I establish all of that, then I will say the thing that clicked for me that changed <laughs> okay. my mind a little bit. Alright, give it to me. I totally agree with you. He is way too one-dimensional, because they needed to either go one of two ways with Rain Wilson, and they went neither, which is the problem. Mm. One, the obvious choice is, yes, he should be a DJ or the Wall character. So obvious that he should be the nerd on the crew who knows things like he gets that one little quip about don't you watch shark week and i'm like that should be the whole movie oh yeah yeah he should be coming at it with quips like that with the mindset of a millionaire in a room full of scientists and dive rescue people it's clear that they're not going to stick him in the nerd role because rain wilson is the second most famous person in this movie Arguably, he's the most famous person in this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I would honestly say maybe it's a it's a toss-up there between him and Statham. So he's a get. He's a get for the Meg. And so they clearly feel like they can't stick him in this supporting role. They need to put him in a bigger role. And so they give him the role that, you know, Mr. Fantastic has in San Andreas of the guy that you hate. <laughs> oh, yeah. The rich, snooty guy who you hate. And... The problem is they don't commit enough to making him a bastard. I don't want him to die enough. It's only in the last, like, ten minutes of his screen time that I don't like that character. They should pull that reveal way earlier, have him be way more adversarial to our main crew, because they don't even know that he's bad until after he is done having FaceTime with any of the characters. 
until after he's dead. Yeah. Until he is killed by the Meg in a way that I thought truly I was like, they do the fake out where he like bites the whale next to Rain Wilson. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? Start the, start the Meg 2 with Rain Wilson being like internationally court-martialed by the Chinese government or something. Like, have that be a thing, and he's got to be like, you know, I'll help with this second Meg because I messed up the first. But no, they kill him off and then cut to them just being like, so he didn't call the military after all. Hmm. And that's like it. They don't commit enough to him being a coward. They don't commit enough to him being smarmy. They don't make him the nerd. It's a flat tire. It just kind of doesn't work. Halfway through watching it for the show, I had a switch flip in my brain that I think made me enjoy the character a lot more, which is I started picturing Rain Wilson's character as an older version of Mr. Beast. (laughs) He's trying to make clickbait videos on YouTube a reality by discovering, like, dinosaurs. Like, the idea of, like, it's just rich beyond reason. He's like, I kind of, I guess that the, like, underwater lab seems cool, but he literally knows nothing about, I know it's because so we could exposition dump, but he literally knows nothing about the lab that he's put $2 billion into or the research that he's put $2 billion into. Right, yeah. And I'm like, that's it. Like, you know, he's wearing his baseball cap and he's got his dumb little cheeks beard, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that's Mr. Beast, I think. That's a really fun idea to roll with when watching this movie, I feel like. Because you kind of have to put your own spin on that character to make it worth all the screen time that he sucks up in this movie. And I mean... That's not to say that everyone else in this movie is, like, super great at acting, I guess. I don't know. There's some very stiff folks in this cast that, well, again, it makes this movie fun to watch in a different kind of way. does not make these characters as endearing as they want us to believe that they are when they're like, that thing killed our friend. And I'm like, the guy whose name I just learned a second before he died? Like, I don't care about that guy. Yeah. As is a frequent symptom of these kinds of movies, or also lower-budget horror movies or something, Mm -hmm. I am only attached to the characters whose actors I know from something else. Exactly. I want to talk about, just, I haven't found a natural place to slot it in, the trailer for this movie... Yes. ...is better than this movie. Not only does the trailer make the Meg look way more like an intense thriller, which the Meg really isn't much of a thriller, I would say. It also makes it look like they're having so much more fun Mm -hmm. when they kick in somewhere beyond the sea. You're like, oh, summer blockbuster, let's go. I guess even when that trailer was like circulating in the real time that this movie was coming out, it Mm -hmm. it wasn't really selling me super well, but then rewatching it just to like, kind of get that lens of what it was and what it wasn't compared to the movie, they show pretty much every single set piece of this movie. It's a long trailer, but man, they let you know everything that's going to happen, and it still kind of sells the movie better than it actually turns out being. You hit the two elements right on the head of, I wish this movie were more fun, which the trailers sell it as, and I wish this movie were creepier. The trailer opens with the little girl and the ball scene. Yeah! Which is the most unsettling part of the movie, but the way it's edited in the trailer is actually scarier, I think, than it is in the context of the movie. And that's too bad, because if the tension were a little bit higher, and, you know, I'm sure that Beyond the Sea is a needle drop that is expensive, 
But oh, yeah. if they had a moment more like that, it has moments where it touches the level of fun that the teaser shows. Like, honestly, it's mostly in the third act. Like, the dog coming back is... Yes! Oh, worth damn. that. I love... I um, thought that dog was so dead. <laughs> honestly, I think the best part of the movie is when it says Finn at the end. I think that's so... That's <laughs> such a good punchline. It really is. I, I was... Zero percent expecting that good of a period on the end of the sentence of the Meg, but it it was it was a fabulous ending. And it could be a really dumb lazy joke. It could be like okay, if if it were just Jason Statham, you know, driving away in a boat or something, and then it just said Finn, that would be nothing. But the idea that it does this really long, eerie. Yeah, move way down into the depths of the ocean and you're like oh am i gonna get a jump scare am i gonna get a tease for the next movie and no it's just finn <laughs> like in a, in a cursive script so good so good i thought i i'm amazing I'm very big fan of that and now we've got the meg 2 the trench or whatever it's called coming out that kind of i i guarantee they did not think that they were gonna get whatever level of weird success they did out yeah. of that first one do you think he will kill the Meg by hand in the Meg 2? Like, he, I'd completely he forgotten that he just does. totally guts the Meg. Yeah, dude, he, like, he does a maneuver and just splits it open and then stabs it in the eyeball. Like, mm-hmm. at that point, I was like, oh, the Meg isn't that strong. The Meg can inflict a lot of damage, but you can kind of just crash a boat into the Meg and you're fine. That's why they have to go bigger in the trench, Shavis. Oh, dude, my God, I... I think that the idea of, like, the layer of hyper-cold hydrogen or whatever that is covering this, like, weird Kong Skull Island under the surface of the known world thing that they're going for, I think that's really fun and cool, and I kind of wish they spent more time trapped down there. I suspect that the name The Trench means that we'll be going back there, or at least I would hope. You would think so, but there's also just, like, maybe it's just, like, the thing's escaping. There's there's bigger fish, you know, the whole deal. And How did the Meg escape from the barrier in the intro with the nuclear submarine? Was that nuclear submarine under that hypercold layer? Did they make that discovery first? That's a very interesting question that I had not considered until this. I, that's an insane... Right? That's, a, that's... I hate to be this guy, especially about the Meg, because I hate this... <laughs> I, I've grown to hate this term. That is an actual real plot hole in this like movie. that's that's kind of what I'm saying. That's the only thing I was I was really thinking about in my head today. Of like I really like the intro of him. He has to bail on his other rescue team guys and the whole like Jonas was right set up where that that uh-huh. gets him back to the station. It's like, well, how would he know? Like I, like how did it get out? How did yeah, I this feel, I, other station be like we're the first people ever to get under this layer? I over feel like here. they cut a scene when they're escaping where he sees something more than just the thing imploding or something. Yeah, like, may- maybe. There's the there's... Meg director's cut that we have to get in the extended cut. Oh, John Turtletop. John Turtletop directed this movie. National treasure John Turtletop yeah, himself. That... You wouldn't think, weirdly enough. It doesn't feel like it to me. Well, he's got an insane filmography. Literally, he did, you know, the National Treasure movies... The Sorcerer's Apprentice, but then he also did, like, While You Were Sleeping, like, the Chicago rom-com with Bill Pullman and Sandra Bullock. weird, weird. He did some other 90s movie like that. Oh, he did, uh, The Kid with Bruce Willis. He's got that weird (laughs) filmography. 
Including the Meg. The Meg does not make that filmography any less weird, and it's even more out of left field, I feel like, than most of those things. And he is not doing the Meg 2. It's Ben Wheatley is doing the Meg 2, who is uh, the, the Free Fire guy and other things, but mostly Free Fire. I'm sure there are a lot of people that would take umbrage with that categorization of Ben Wheatley's career. <laughs> but I'm like the Free Fire guy, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, man, I, I I hope we get maybe a couple of return people in the Meg 2. I mean, there's enough people that survive that it would be a fun little thing to have them back. I don't know. I don't think enough. I mean, I'm sure DJ will be back. He's probably the character with the yeah, most personality. Yeah, Paige Kennedy. Yeah. I love his work on weeds. That's the thing that I was trying the entire movie to figure out why I know him from something. And it's weeds. And he's great in that, too. Very different character. An outstanding one episode stint on Justified that is very yes. as well. So, hey, maybe they'll finally write him a full character this time around if he's in the new one. And that then, would be hope, nice. It would wouldn't be that nice be way. something? I mean, because like I'd love to see Cliff Curtis back, but also why would we bother bringing Cliff Curtis back? Because he has no character. He should have been secretly evil. I feel like he should have been like actually secretly evil and like working with Rain Wilson or something. I kept end. thinking I think he should be in love with. Jason Statham's ex-wife, who also has nothing to do in this movie. dude, I was gonna say, they, like, do that whole thing where they're like, they were the worst married couple ever. I didn't even ask you that. I know, I know. Like, almost hitting you over the head with, like, they used to be married. Uh But then they don't, literally, I don't even know if they share more than, like, a couple words together on screen. They have that that. one scene where she's like, yo, you should, you know, that, I see the way that girl's looking at you, Jason Statham. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, I'm a cool (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know you memorized part of the script garrett we can do a dramatic reading if you want that's incredible (laughs) oh jason statham could have played the meg smaug style just like noises of of the meg (laughs) you know i'd be into that i would actually would that be like If you heard that about the Meg when it was coming out, wouldn't you be way more excited? It's like he plays the guy, but he also makes the shark sounds like he's Groot, kind of. Like, it's kind of incredible. Cumberbatch also does that in Doctor Strange. He also plays Dormammu. Oh, he plays Dormammu. What is the deal with that? Why is he all about that? Because he's cool. I like that. That that is a cool move, right? I mean, like, that that, that impresses me. They just put the shark mocap on Statham. Or hell, Rain Wilson. Get get your money's worth out of Rain Wilson in this there movie, go. for God's sake. I think that's the Meg, Seamus. I think we have Megged the Meg. In, in, kind of my favorite stupid movie now. Like it's it's kind of the worst, but I also maybe will buy it on Blu-ray at some point soon. <laughs> it, it's in the the weirdest middle ground of all time. It's no Kong Skull Island, but it gets the job done. It's and. no Kong Skull Island, but it's also not Jaws, so take that as you will. <laughs> uh, but it's better than Sharknado. It, like, oh, yeah, I ur- dude. I urge, I know we're already in spoilers, so everybody listening to this segment has already <laughs> watched this movie. But if you're ever going to watch Sharknado, just watch The Meg instead. Just watch The Meg. I think I can second that. Without having ever seen a single Sharknado all the way through, I can put my stamp of approval on that as well. Well... Let's go ahead and move on to today's pop culture reference. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the influence of the Chinese market on the Western film industry. China has a rich and complex cinematic history worth exploring further in another segment. 
But for the majority of the medium's history, Chinese theaters were largely closed off from the rest of the world. This changed in 1994 when it was agreed to let 10 Hollywood films screen in China per year as part of a larger modernization effort. Over the next quarter century, the Chinese film industry turned into an empire rivaling the Hollywood system, and China became the number one film market in the world. As Hollywood executives realized how lucrative the Chinese market was, relationships were built with Chinese producers and politicians, who were keen on using the titanic power of the film industry as a tool for political messaging. With major release budgets skyrocketing, and the Chinese market proving to be a powerhouse, it became vital for large Hollywood films to appeal to Chinese audiences and officials alike. In the 2010s, the influence of this goal became apparent on Hollywood's tentpoles. Films like World War Z and Skyfall were re-edited to ensure China was not portrayed in a negative light, and X-Men and Transformers franchises begin to include Chinese movie stars in their casts. Chinese money also began playing a much larger role in Hollywood filmmaking, with companies like Legendary Pictures and STX Entertainment being bought out. Even America's largest theater chain, AMC Theaters, was acquired by the Chinese company The Wanda Group in 2012. The need to placate Chinese censorship has impacted Hollywood films beyond their portrayal of China. Prejudices perpetrated by the censors, such as those against black-led films and portrayals of same-sex relationships, are often toned down or removed altogether, despite their wider acceptance from Western audiences. In effect, on top of making larger studio films more China-centric, the massive influence of the market also often keeps these films more conservative. While a few years ago China was permitting 30 to 40 international films into its cinemas, that number has fallen significantly since the pandemic. Though Meg star Li Bingbing is not returning for the Meg 2, one of China's most profitable and recognizable actors, Wu Jing, has been cast to act as a second lead alongside Statham, furthering the earning potential to new heights in the Chinese market. It's fascinating to catch these, I know we listed a couple examples above, but the way that films are altered, even something like, I don't know if you remember this back when the Top Gun Maverick teaser poster came out, there was much made of the changes to the patches on the back of Maverick's jacket to oh. be a more politically cohesive landscape ah. in regards to, <laughs> you know, the reflecting the China's sovereignty over certain territories that may or may not be yeah. uh, in flux. I mean, I think they did the exact same thing with a Pixar movie a couple of years ago. Certain world maps were completely edited out of backgrounds of shots in Pixar movies because of certain boundary lines drawn in certain oceans in, in the Southeast Asian claim to territory. I feel like this is something that we've kind of mentioned in passing before, but certainly The Meg is one of the bigger impacted films, I should say, that we've talked about on here. Especially it has an entire Chinese production company whose logo is at the front yes. of it. Yes, I mean, yeah, it was co-produced by by that company and, I mean, shot a lot in in Chinese regions and in, uh, in the locations in the movie itself, there's a lot of, of Chinese locations. I mean... It's very apparent that the influence is there, even if there weren't, like, these big movie stars that are predominantly from the Chinese film industry. But with that, what do you say we wrap it up and go save the rec center? Let's save it. Save the rec center! 
Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you have to save the rec center this week? Well, I feel like it would be cheating if I rec centered Pee Wee's Big Adventure after talking about it so much up top. So <laughs> I will leave that unsaid as a cheeky little way to cheat my rec center to give two rec centers, <laughs> you I guess. Bastard. <laughs> But I recently watched a documentary that came out last year that's been high on my watch list for a while, and I've just never pulled the trigger on it. It is currently available on Hulu and Disney Plus, Fire of Love. Seamus, do you know this movie? Uh, It sounds familiar, but I don't know if I know exactly what it is. It is about a couple, Maurice and Katya Kraft, who were volcanologists in the latter half of the 20th century and filmed all of their expeditions with thousands and thousands of hours of footage. And this documentarian has gone back through and edited a documentary about their lives and careers and their relationship from primarily this archival footage that the subjects themselves shot and it's got a very cutesy, almost, I hate to invoke Wes Anderson, but almost Wes anderson <laughs> editing aesthetic. It has a lot of personality for a documentary of its ilk. It's narrated by Miranda July, and I was very touched. It's a tight, like, 92 minutes or something like that. I was really interested to learn not only about these people, but also I also learned a lot about volcanoes, so that was cool, too. That sounds really fascinating, if I'm being honest. A a documentary edited out of footage that the people shooting the footage don't know that that's what it will ultimately become at a certain point. I think that's really fascinating in and of itself. Plus, you know, exclusive volcano eruption footage is just cool to look at. And I think that that would be a really... You said it was, you know, 90... Quick 90 minutes? I would definitely put that on. That sounds like it's right up my alley. But... What did you have for the rec center, Seamus? You can also find my rec center actually exclusively on Hulu because I checked out the first couple episodes of the Futurama revival, revival, revival. (laughs) And I was not disappointed. I thought it was a really fun first couple episodes. They're releasing them week to week which is an interesting choice considering the last couple times it was revived. I don't know. I mean, I don't ultimately know how many times it was officially canceled and brought back, but I think Hulu is the third network or production, whatever, to to take it on and, and revive it. But they really haven't missed a beat with this show. It's a lot of fun, self-referential stuff. They Always, whenever they do get revived, which will, I'm sure, happen again after they get canceled again at some point, but they always have a great way of just fully connecting it right back to the very last thing that happened in the last finale that they did, and they once again pull that off really well. They're keeping it fresh, but there's plenty of fun, diehard fan stuff that they do not skimp on. There's a lot of fun in-jokes that they're like, well, we're back. We don't know how much long, how long we have before we get canceled again. We're, we're kind of firing on all cylinders, so I, I very much recommend it. At the risk of outing myself as kind of a Futurama normie, Seamus, you know all of this already. I love Futurama. 
It's really funny, but I certainly am not up to date on all of Futurama. Is this something that you would encourage me or somebody like me to jump ahead and get into? Or do you think it's like, if you already have exhausted the tank of existing Futurama, then move on to this? The second one, Garrett. I think you should definitely watch the old stuff first. Not only because of kind of what I was ranting about earlier of just like, they are really good at picking up right where things left off, but it's not to say that it's the best Futurama I've ever seen in these first couple episodes. It's more of just like a solid continuation that I'm satisfied with at the moment, but does not hold the candle to the classic stuff. Okay, good. That's what I figured, but... Yeah, def- definitely. I mean, if you if you find yourself catching up, then fully, highly recommended. You know, watch all the movies, do all the extra revival seasons, get prepared, because like I said, they, they are right where the last one ended in not uh, as cheesy of a way as they could have, which I'm very happy about. That wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show... You can find us on social media at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Engage with us on YouTube or any other platform that you're listening on. It really helps the show out. Join us next week where we are going to be diving right into the Meg 2 Trench Wars, whatever the sequel is called. I'm very excited to to get into that now that I'm a Meg head. Finally joined the rest of the world. Uh, it's going to be a lot more Statham. Uh, hopefully, more Statham impressions next week. I would say. I think we <laughs> I think we failed the, the the listener group here, but I think he's going to go even more Stathamy coming up. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't want to derail with too much podcast talk here in the last moments of the podcast. I just realized that. The Meg 2, The Trench. I thought that the Aquaman 2 was also called The Trench, and they're both <laughs> you Warner really? Brothers. I Wait, is it is the second Aquaman called The Trench? I thought the Aquaman sequel was going to be called The Trench, but I don't know. Yeah, is we, that movie even coming out? Who knows? Is oh, Aquaman going to be in The Meg 2? I was going to say, this is the backdoor for uh, Jason Statham to be Deadshot in... In Aquaman 2, which would actually not even be that bad of casting if you asked me. Well, join us next week when Jason Statham fights Aquaman. Oh, can't wait. Adios, amigos.